Father, once again, we're thankful <clears throat> for your grace that is part of the eternal plan for salvation and that you have brought forward that plan faithfully according to your word, fulfilling each detail of Scripture. And we thank you for that track record of faithfulness and loyalty. We pray tonight that you would illuminate our hearts to some of the issues that rose when you brought your Son into the world. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Tonight, um, if you will look at page 51, um, we're going to look at some of the details um, of what happened <clears throat> in response to the king's presence. Um, if you turn your Bibles to Matthew 12:14, um, this is just one example of the reaction to the king. And as I said several times, you can read the Gospels and you can watch this process operate in that the first part of the Gospels are all the king basically presenting himself, showing himself to be the Messiah through words and through works. And for a while, he attracts people. For a while, he builds numerically his followers. And then at a certain critical point, almost literally halfway through each of the four Gospels, the process reverses. There becomes a reaction to the presence of the king. And he becomes a very controversial person and one who cultivates, as it were, fury on the part of those who can't stand him. And in Matthew 12, this is one of the turning points here in, um, in his ministry. Um, that summarizes the reaction of the society's leadership class to the person of Jesus Christ. From this point on, it's just a matter of time before he's crucified. And if you'll note in verse 14, the Pharisees went out, they counseled together. So it wasn't just one or two people. It was an entire uh, coalescing of the leadership of the society. They counseled together against him as to how they may destroy him. Now, that is the response to the king. We want, because we're so used to preaching the gospel and saying, well, Jesus was crucified and we're saved through his crucifixion. Um, maybe sometime we don't give uh, adequate attention to what led to the crucifixion. Yes, the crucifixion is wonderful, but the crucifixion actually grew out of hatred. And it's this hatred for God, a hatred for revelation, a hatred directed against the most clear form of revelation that has ever occurred in human history. Uh, the purer and the clearer the revelation, the more violent the reaction will be against it. So Jesus Christ becomes a, a case that is clearer to see than Isaiah, Moses, Daniel, David, or any of the other leaders of the Bible because he was perfect. The revelation was unhindered by any personal sin in his life. And so the righteousness of God shone forth. And therefore the sin in response to that righteousness showed up very violently. So what we want to look at, starting in page 51, in this, well, I want to examine that quote, that long quote by Professor Stroll, because we want to understand in our thinking as Christians um, how the hatred against God and the, the animosity against any revelation, hint, or 
suggestion about his character. We want to study that and study man's response to it. So if you look at, at, this, at this thing, I just picked this out because uh, it's old, it's 20, 30 years old, but it would be typical of what you would hear in any university classroom today. Same story. It was typical of what you would read in Time magazine every Christmas and every Easter. U.S. News and World Report, all of the mag- news magazines. It would be typical of a television program discussion uh, wherever you go. So even though this was a particular lecture at the University of British Columbia 30 years ago, it still has a structure that's valid today. Now, we want to go through this little assault on our faith because part of, remember, part of this course is to become used to the assaults, the attacks against our position and understand them so we can stand against them. <clears throat> so, in this um, quote, I have listed eight different places. Now, I want to see how sharp we all are by way of observation. I found at least eight places in this professor's dissertation where he betrays his presuppositional position, where he shows uh, his, um, the bias against the Word of God. We want to get cued to listening for this, because this isn't just Professor Stroll. This is not just the academic intellectuals. Men in the street the same way. It's just they express it differently. But we want to tune into this thing and understand where the attack is coming from. So let's go through this with a sort of fine-tooth comb and watch. Because remember when we started this back three or four years ago, when we started in Genesis, I said over and over again, one of the places I personally have failed many times is when someone asks you a question about your faith, about the gospel, immediately you're thinking of an answer. What can I answer to that question? Wrong. That's not the first thing you think about. The first thing you think about is the question itself. Review it. Make sure that you really want to answer that question. Gets back to how many times last week you beat your wife. You can't answer it any other way than incriminating yourself. So a question can be a trap for you. So don't walk into the trap. Always review the question. Filter the question before you try to give an answer to it. Basic principle. Now, watch what happens when this guy gets up and gives his lecture. In contemporary philosophic theology, one of the most widely debated questions concerns the relation between the historical Jesus, a man supposedly living in Palestine sometime between 9 B.C. and A.D. 32, and the Jesus described in the Gospel writings. Now, remember I told you back before we got started with this thing, what did you have to keep your eyes on? The historical Jesus and the charismatic Christ. Remember we defined those terms? And here it is. Now, he's not using charismatic, but uh, charismatic Christ. But uh, the, the idea is there. Let's review. The historical Jesus and the charismatic Christ. Now, what do we mean by these two terms? The first one is referring to the real Jesus that walked around Palestine. The historical Jesus. The second term up there is the charismatic, that's the Greek word, the preached 
Christ, meaning the New Testament picture of Jesus. Later tonight, we're going to discuss the diagram on page 53, but we might as well skip over there for a minute because we're seeing a good example of it right now. Figure 2 shows in picture form what the ideas are that are going on here. When I first got into New Testament criticism, it took me a while to understand what is going on here. And I finally boiled it down to this kind of way of looking at it, and it, it gels for you. Position A, position B, and position C. Position C, the historical, charismatic, real Jesus Christ. Same person. The picture of Jesus that we get in the New Testament is the tr- picture of the true Jesus. Now, we could quibble here. We could quibble. You could say, well, is it the New Testament picture of Jesus really what a first century Jew who happened to be in the street listening to Jesus would have thought? And then I have to grant you that every Jew that walked the streets of Palestine in the first century wasn't clued in to who Jesus was. It's very clear they weren't. But that's not the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus that we're talking about is who he really was, not what the average person in the street misinterpreted to be the historical Jesus. They viewed him as just a carpenter's son. But that wasn't true, was it? He was the son of God. So when we talk about the historic Jesus, we mean the charismatic Christ, because the Holy Spirit, who wrote the New Testament, reported accurately what was going on with this enigmatic figure. The God-man, Jesus Christ. The New Testament text preserves that. Now, let's think about something we've covered in the past. Remember, we said back in the first part of the Bible that all the human race at one point had the Noahic Bible available. Right? Genesis 1 to 9. The entire human race had those nine chapters. Today, you go back into ancient history and you read all kinds of myths. Pandora's box. This lady that opens up the box and all the evil comes out. There's truth in that Pandora's box mythology, isn't there? What is it? It's a distorted, faint memory of what event of real history? Eve. Achilles and his heel. Now, what's that a faint remembrance of? What was the promise of the Messiah to Adam and Eve? The seed, thou shalt bruise his heel, but you shall bruise his head. And it's preserved in the the myth of Achilles. Now, it's twisted turns. You could read the myth of Achilles and, and never having read the Bible, you would never get it out of there. Never. But that myth preserves some of history and distorts the rest. So what we said was, you could take the Noahic Bible, Genesis 1 to 9, stick it right up here. You could take any myth, Pandora's box, Achilles, uh, uh, the uh, Numa Elish mythology, and put it up here. Now, if you took those two things, the Bible and the myth, and you put them side by side, what have you got a testimony of? What, what interesting profoundly interesting data do you have here? 
What you have is what the fallen flesh does with truth. The mythologies are case studies of spiritual pathology that infects the human race. The myths are pictures by measuring the delta, the difference between the myth and the scripture. That's a measure of sin and its effect on the intellect. Now, why this is never taught, even in Christian school, I will never know. But Christians should be taught this. You've got a built-in experiment. Every experiment has a control. The Genesis 1-9 to text is the control. The myths are what the sinful man's mind has generated down through history. Great poets, great stimulating writers, great oral teachers have generated this mythological material. They were smart, skilled people. But what they did when, when put up against the control is a reflection of the harmoniology or the doctrine of sin. It's a reflect of the pathology of the fallen intellect. What does it do to revelation? It always distorts revelation. Now, why is there so much energy in this fleshly mind of man that works itself so hard to keep down and keep suppressing revelation? Paul says that in Romans 1. It is to avoid what? If I can suppress revelation, what can I fool myself and self-deceive myself into thinking? I'm no longer accountable to the God of creation. You see, there's a powerful subliminal agenda at work here behind the pathology. And the agenda is to get me safe as a sinner, get me safe from a holy, righteous God to whom I'm accountable. That's the whole motif here. That's the thing that's going on behind the scenes that generates all this delta between what the Scripture reports and what the mythologies create. Now let's come to the New Testament and the diagram in position figure two. This diagram shows the same truth that I just got through saying, except now, in place of the Noahic Bible, we have the charismatic Christ. And in place of the mythology, we have the, quote, historical Jesus. And people want to split them apart. The historical Jesus in in position A, that's what's mythological. They're seeking for a Jesus of history that is not the Son of God. They're seeking for historic, harmless, Jewish carpenter boy. Because if he's only a historical Jewish carpenter boy and not the Son of God, I can breathe a sigh of relief. But if he really is the charismatic Christ of the New Testament, now I've got a problem. He's my judge, besides being a savior. And moreover, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto me. I have no choice in the matter because he is the only way of salvation. So faced with this, you better believe that I'm going to try to create a historical Jesus that's harmless. So understand the agenda that's going on. See this agenda at work. So this doesn't become just an abstract study in what some intellectuals said. The intellectuals are affected in exactly the same way as the non-intellectuals. It doesn't make any difference whether you're intellectual or not. We're all fallen. And part of our fallen nature is to avoid and want to hide from God. What did Adam and Eve do? Two seconds after they fell. Trying to hide. Hide themselves. Hide behind the bushes. 
Well, we're still doing it, except now instead of using fig leaves, we use ideas. And we use literature. And we use all kinds of sophisticated gimmickry. But we're doing the same thing as Adam and Eve did with fig leaves. So, position A is like Abram Stroll, or position B probably, where they're trying to spread apart the charismatic New Testament Christ that's so offensive, so demanding, so compelling, and create this, the real Jesus, and make this real Jesus harm less. Okay, now let's go back to Stroll's quote. Now let's watch how it unfolds. Because as I say, this is a one, one address among many, and it happened 30 years ago, and you know, you can... But the, but the psychology behind it is the same thing. <clears throat> Notice in the next paragraph. One may, I think, not unfairly summarize the scholarly opinion on this question as follows. The existence of Jesus is beyond question, but the information we have about him is a composite of fact and legend which cannot be reliably untangled. Let's just stop there for a moment. Two sentences. What do you observe about those two sentences? Look at them carefully. What do you notice in the sentence that begins, one may, I think. What does he do between one may, I think, and the colon? that first full colon that follows the word follows. What does he set you up? Watch this. This is done time and time again. It has done so often that we don't even think about it. It is done repeatedly on television. It's done repeatedly in news articles. After you get to the colon and you absorb the content of that sentence, what kind of opinion would you be left with if you disagreed with him? Unscholarly opinion. So immediately in the first sentence, in the first sentence, he's defined the scholarly opinion to be identical to the non-Christian position. Now, how often have you heard that one in evolution debates and all the rest of it? Well, scholarly opinion says... We can quote, by the way conservative scholars that don't agree with this. But when you cite them, if you believe this, what are those guys? They're not scholars. So now here's an interesting thing that's gone on in the, in the discussion. Right, right off the starting block, we've defined words. The trick is, whoever sets up the definition of the word wins the argument. Because going into the starting gate, We've already eliminated the Christian position from scholarly consideration. You can't be a scholar and believe the Christian position after you reach the colon in this sentence. He's put up a filter. See what he's done? He's put up a filter that has filtered out you and me and any Bible-believing person. I mean, I know plenty of New Testament scholars. I know a guy who's got his Ph.D. from Harvard in theoretical math and he's got his Ph.D. in New Testament studies from Cambridge University. He's a fundamentalist and believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, what about that? A dual doctorate? One in theoretical math and one in that? Doesn't that make him a scholar? No. It's not the degrees that you have. It's the content of your opinion that defines whether you're a scholar or not. You see? So right away, watch this. Watch this. This, is, this goes on and on and on. 
So, so he, here he is saying, let me summarize the scholarly opinion. So obviously anything that follows isn't scholarly. So right away, number one, you can put a note in the margin after one, but right in front of one May, you've got a filter that he built in off the starting block right from the very start. Now let's go further. But the information we have about him is a composite of fact and legend which cannot be reliably untangled. Now, thankfully, he at least has said it's opinion, scholarly opinion. But what I want you to draw your attention to is what is the main verb in that clause? The information we have about him, perhaps, or the information about him might possibly be. Do you see any qualification? No. An indicative verb is used to convey certainty. You see, language has moods in it. Now, in the Greek text, in the Greek language, these verb forms were actually morphologically different. So when you read the Greek, you can tell whether you're reading an indicative verb, in in an imperative mood, or a subjunctive mood, and so on. Now, what are those moods? It's, It's degrees of certainty. An indicative verb states a fact. A subjunctive verb would be, in English, um, that could be. That could be. Now, if you say that in conversation, what kind of certainty is that? How does that differ from that is what I said? Versus, I, I could have said that. Don't remember. Certain politicians are good at using the subjunctive mood from time to time. But the subjunctive mood and the indicative mood are ways God has created in the language so that every one of us can communicate certainty or uncertainty or degrees of certainty to each other. That's why the language has that structure. All language has that structure in some form or another. So by using an indicative verb here, he has connoted just the way the sentence is structured, certainty, absolutely certain. So after we've been hit with a filter about scholars, now we're hit... The second thing, that it is a composite of fact and legend which cannot be reliably untangled. So, so we're hit now with... Do you see how it builds on itself? First, we're, the, any Bible believer is filtered out of the discussion. The next thing that happens is now we've created in concrete the unbelieving statement. Now let's read further. These passages from Josephus and the passage from Tacitus contain the only information we have about the existence of Christ from non-Christian sources in the first century. Now, just hold the place and turn to page 25 in the notes. Back many weeks ago, we went through this. And when I was talking about the virgin birth claim, what did we do? We went to some non-Christian sources. And what were those non-Christian sources? They were Jewish non-Christian sources. Remember? The Jewish sources that blamed Mary for being a fornicator and called Jesus a bastard. Okay? Now, notice in page 25, I quote right here from the Mishnah a statement about what appears to be a reference to Jesus Christ. And Joseph Klausner, a Jewish scholar, writes of this Mishnaic section that Jesus is here referred to seems to be beyond all doubt. 
Klausner notes that throughout the Jewish Talmud, including its Mishnaic section, Jesus is known as Yeshu ben Pentera. Jesus, the son of Pandera, a title which may refer to Mary's alleged paramour or to the virgin birth claim itself. Virgin in Greek is Parthenos. Another Talmudic scholar, Herbert Danby, summarized the entire Talmudic reference to the virgin birth claim. Well, now, what have we just said on page 25 about a source material, non-Christian source material about Jesus? Jewish, right? Now turn back to Stroll's argument on page 51. Look at his statement. He quotes Josephus and Tacitus, and what does he say? It contains the only information that we have about Christ. So what's my third observation about Professor Stroll's address? He's got a factual error. That is a false statement. That is not true that Josephus and Tacitus are the only information that we have about Jesus from non-Christian sources. So now look what's happened here in four sentences. You see why college kids can get screwed up? You know, I mean, they come out of high school, and many high schools, are, and I'm not knocking the high schools, and many of them are good, but there's so many other competing things to hard courses. And so we take basket weaving 101 and a few other things, and then we always have to take the sociological courses and go through all the hoopla stuff. And we come out high school kind of half mature in thinking. And the first thing we do, we get plugged into a freshman lecture hall somewhere, where a professional sits there, a guy with his doctorate who has years under his belt, who is Mr. Slick. And he just hoses down everybody in the, in the lecture hall. Lecture after lecture, hosing them down. Kids never been taught to think critically, never been cued to the signals that are going on, never taken apart and parsed a guy's lecture like we're doing here tonight to learn how to take the truth and filter it. And then they walk out, oh, I don't know whether I really believe the Bible anymore. Well, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I mean, gee, he has a Ph.D. And then, and, then, and then here we go. Shipwrecks of the faith all over the place. And especially disastrous is it when a kid goes to a Christian college and gets this liberal stuff for twice the cost he could get it for in a secular college. So now we have in this set of, of things, we have three things to watch for. We see a filter being put on at the first step. We see an indicative sentence of certainty where there can't be certainty. Now we see a falsity. Let's read further. It is clear that neither writer could have been an eyewitness to the events he describes. Now, I'm not so sure Josephus couldn't have. Maybe he was too old, too young. It wasn't too, it was too young. The Gospels, of course, purport to contain descriptions of the life and activities of Christ from the time of his nativity through his baptism, crucifixion, and resurrection until the attention of historical scholarship was directed to these documents early in the 19th century. It was commonly assumed that they contained eyewitness reports of the events described. Okay, number four, by way of observation, what has he just pulled a slick one right there? There's a lot folded into that statement. Let me unpack it. Until, quote, watch it, underline that section, attention of historical scholarship. Now, that's an interesting statement. Apparently, there were no scholars before the 19th century. Thomas Aquinas wasn't a scholar, see. Calvin wasn't a scholar. 
you know, he's only 21, and he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion that formed the heart of Protestant religion for centuries afterwards. You know, not a scholar, though. Excuse me? Until the attention of historical scholarship was directed to these documents. Now, let me explain what he's really meaning. By the term historical scholarship, Dr. Stroll is talking about higher criticism. Let me define that one for you. This is a term we ought to know. Higher criticism. We also ought to know something else called lower criticism. And I want to define those two terms. Lower criticism we don't have to bother with. Lower criticism, at least right now. Lower criticism is dealing with a source material in the manuscripts. Some unsealed manuscripts read this way in John 8.58. Other manuscripts read another way in John 8.58. The greatest and biggest example of lower criticism is uh, one of the uh, chapter. well, the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark is a controversial. Well, that's not in some manuscripts. Sometimes it is. So there's an example of lower criticism. Lower criticism deals with the textual materials that are used in Bible translation. Now, lower criticism has presuppositions to it. That's why today we have this big argument going on about the King James text versus the non-King James text. That's all, but that's a lower criticism question. Higher criticism. Higher criticism seeks to understand how the Bible was created in history. In other words, higher criticism opens the question of when Luke sat down to wrote the Gospel of Luke, where did he get his material? Was it direct vision? Was it interviews? We happen to think actually that Dr. Luke, who was a physician, interviewed. He interviewed a lot of people. In fact, he's the only guy that, in all the Gospel writers that reports how Mary felt about her pregnancy in, in great depth. So it's quite clear that he went back to Mary and talked to her. And as a doctor, he was interested in those kind of details. Matthew wasn't. He was a tax collector. So in Luke's Gospel, you get, you get more of a flavor of what was going on during the pregnancy. Matthew is more concerned with the bureaucratic and legalistic implications of the virgin birth, but not how Mary felt. And I believe that's why God took four different men to write four different Gospels. It gives a, a perspective on the person of Jesus Christ. Well, that is a harmless kind of higher criticism. But that kind of higher criticism always existed. There were debates during the canonicity period when the church was trying to decide what book should be in the canon. Remember we talked about the canon? Well, they engaged in an early form of higher criticism when they were trying to decide that question. Did an apostle write this particular book or didn't he? What this guy means by a t historical scholarship in the early 19th century is higher criticism that sought to explain the scriptures in terms of human, humanism as a humanistic creation of man. Higher criticism sought a human explanation for all documents, Plato, Aristotle, everybody else, and they placed the scripture along with everything else. So the uniqueness of the scripture, in spite of its own self-claim, that it is the Word of God, 
that it's an inspired text, in spite of that, that's tossed aside, and the Scripture is arbitrarily, at step one in the discussion, classed as a piece of humanly generated literature. And given that fact now, how did it happen? And that's where we get Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch, John couldn't have written the Gospel, and all kinds of reasons. Now, we don't know very much, but we know out of the millions of people, at least John the Apostle could not have written the Gospel of John. But we don't know, we, we can't be certain about history, but that we can be certain of. See, that's the agenda that started floating around the 19th century. So, now you see what he's done here? With that sentence, until attention of historical scholarship, like nobody ever raised the questions before, baloney. What he's talking about is when humanism and secularism took over all control of biblical studies, then the opinion changed about the eyewitness business. See? But if you could put yourself in the position of a naive college student. First time out, you know, he raised oh, attention to historical scholarship. Gee, there wasn't any historical scholarship. And, and you know, gee, when, when, when all the historical scholars got together in the 19th century, while, while everybody else was naive, I guess we have to go along with scholars because everybody until then assumed it was eyewitnesses. And they came along and they told us it wasn't. So I guess it isn't. Totally oblivious to the fact the agenda is at work, folks. The agenda is at work. It's manifesting itself intellectually, maybe not like the myths of the 8th, 10th, 9th, and 10th, and 15th centuries B.C., but there it is again. The contention is that there is not a creator who is revealing himself in human language to man. And if that's so, then the documents, which are in human language, can't be of God, right? Logic follows. But the logic only follows if you agree to the starting point. And the starting point is that there's not a God who speaks. Given that premise, then yeah, go ahead, treat the Bible like it came out of, of just man's mouth, you see. So, be alert to the presuppositional baggage that's being imported. When these words come in, think of a Trojan horse coming inside the walls of Troy, and at night, the soldiers come out. Well, think of your mind as like the city of Troy. And when you get statements like this, the Trojan horse has come into your city. And what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 10.5? Casting down every vain imagination and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, the young student faced with this kind of stuff for the first time usually is not prepared to take it. And so, all the Trojan horses come through. Every time a sentence is made like this, there's no critical filter operating in the mind. Everything is sort of taken in, in wonderment, trust in the faculty that they know what they're saying. And then, boom, all this explodes inside their hearts and tears up their faith because it hasn't been properly filtered. All right, let's continue with Professor Stroll. Let's look at the next sentence. It begins with, It is extremely unlikely that the writers of the documents we now possess would have been eyewitnesses to the activities of Jesus. How does he qualify the certainty in that sentence? Puts a strong adverb in there, doesn't he? extremely unlikely, not just unlikely, 
but it's extremely unlikely. We, we would like to ask Dr. Strola, why do you say it's extremely unlikely? What's your statistic? What's your probability distribution? Where did you get that statistic from? It's extremely unlikely. So that's number four. Uh, number five. We, this is, we're counting the number of, of Trojan horses in this statement here. So this is number five. There is a, the only thing that he can use to justify extremely unlikely is his philosophic presupposition. But to state the philosophic presupposition over and over is just to state it over and over. It's not a proof of anything. It's just a working out of his worldview. And if he's going to do that, we can do the same thing. Worldviews in collision. Now, let's look at the next sentence. Even if there were reason to believe some of the material to express eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, the accretion of legend, the description of miracles performed by Jesus, which exist in these writings, make it difficult, if not impossible, to extract from them reliable historical testimony about the events described. All right, so let's look first at the sentence that begins, even if there were reason to believe. Anybody smell a rat in that one? Even if there were reason to believe. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. That's the same kind of thinking that I warned you about last time when I said, remember I said... Um, one of the things that offended the Pharisees about Jesus was his self-authenticating authority. And Jesus didn't look for anybody to prove anything. What he said was, by definition, true. Going back to the Old Testament, when we had what was our event in the Old Testament that we said we linked to the doctrine of revelation and inspiration? Remember? Mount Sinai. Now, here's where this framework will help you start circulating. Imagine yourself, in your mind's eye, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain. Smoke and fire all over the place. And all of a sudden, you hear these Hebrew words, coming, rolling down this vast valley with a million other people sitting there. And you hear the very words of God in the Hebrew language. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Like it was a fantastic PA system that you couldn't believe. Now you put yourself into that position and look how ridiculous it looks to say, Hey God, can you give me some reasons to believe what you're saying? Now how stupid and arrogant that looks. And nobody who heard God's word in that thing would have said that. I mean, even the non-Christians would have fallen over when God spoke. Because implicitly in our hearts, the way God created us, we know our Maker's voice. There's no discussion. There's no need for a reason. See, that's just another gimmick. That here man is, and we're going to create a, 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 a proof system. And we've got all our human logic here, our logic machine at work, and God's got to fit into our logic machine. God's got to fit our criteria of what is. We set the criteria of truth and we make God fit it. That's arrogance. That's Eve back in the garden. Remember what did she do? She took the word of God, thou shalt die the day you eat thereof. And over here we have 
Mr. Satan. He says, the day that you eat of, you're not going to die. So Eve puts them both on the same platform, treating the Satan creature just like she treats God the Creator. Erases the creator-creature distinction and then thinks she's going to have a test to determine the truth. She's got to have a reason to believe. So you see, we're right back to the same thing. So this statement here, number six, if there were reason to believe, is just another popping up out of his, his, his self-consciousness here, his unconsciousness, of his philosophy of life. That there's got to be an autonomously based and constructed set of proofs to which God has to adhere, when a matter of fact, God is the one whose, whose existence is the presupposition of proving anything. Because were he not existing, we wouldn't have any enduring truth to prove. Let's further continue. I'm sure that in the next part of that statement, you spotted one of the most obvious portions of his statement. The description of miracles performed make it difficult, if not impossible, to extract from them any reliable historical testimony about the events described. What does that flagrantly show? His anti-supernaturalism, right? The guy doesn't accept miracles. Well, the whole Bible from beginning to end is talking about the interfering God. You know, what have we said about the framework here? What kind of a kingdom? A disruptive kingdom. God constantly disrupts especially fallen creation. In His grace, He disrupts us. We don't, calling us to Himself so we don't wind up in hell. This is all miracle. But, but a miracle, I mean, good night. We can't believe in miracles. Well, why can't we believe in miracles? Well, the answer usually is this. You can't believe in miracles because they're disruptions. If you allow any disruption in natural law you destroy the certainty of knowledge because you make it chance-driven, chaotic. That's the argument you always get into. The reason the hatred for miracles is that miracles violate the certainty of human knowledge because our minds want to have it all packed and packaged. And a miracle is an interruption to the package. So, what is our answer? Who stands in turn behind the miracle that's doing the disrupting? Is God a chaotic God? Or is God an immutable God? God a faithful God? A God who assures us in the New Testament that He cannot lie. That He cannot, even though He's omnipotent, He cannot violate His character. That Creator God's character is the source for the miracle. So a miracle doesn't invitiate the certainty of knowledge. Because the certainty of knowledge is His omniscience. It, the certainty wasn't located down here, it's located up here. So miracles are only a threat to knowledge if you've made the human the source of the certainty. Yes, miracles do threaten that kind of knowledge. Yes, it is awe-inspiring to think that the God of the Scriptures told a man to slit his son's throat. But the point still remains that God who stands behind those commands, has a character made up of his attributes, a character that is the source of our stability and our basis. Our stability from day to day doesn't hinge on how we feel. It doesn't hinge on how we think.
Because God sustains him. He never gets tired. He never runs out of energy. His plan is never thwarted, and every molecule obeys his sovereign will. That's the kind of certainty we have. So a miracle here and there doesn't phase us in the least. It's just another part of the plan of God. But a miracle indeed is scary to one who comes at this whole thing from an unbelieving perspective. So Sproul is bothered by this. Now finally, one more sentence in this statement. It seems to me likely that during this New Testament period, a prophet arose was incorpor- uh, uh, and an accretion of legends grew up about this figure, was incorporated into the Gospels by various devotees of the movement, and was rapidly spread throughout the Mediterranean world by the ministry of St. Paul. And that'd be nice that, nice that he does recognize he was a saint. And that because this is so, it is impossible to separate these legendary elements in the purported descriptions of Jesus from those which were in fact true of him. What do you notice about that right from the very start? Item number eight in our critique tonight. The very first subject and verb. It seems to me likely. Well, that's fine, but that's autobiographical. I may or may not be interested in what seems to be likely to you, Dr. Stroll. So, all he's doing in, in that last sentence is simply reiterating what he said seven times before. I am an unbeliever. I have located certainty in the human intellect. Miracles are a threat to my worldview. And that's why I can't stand miracles. And that's why I cannot allow the Scriptures to speak for themselves, but they must be under the control and suppression of the human intellect through scholarship that began in the 19th century under higher criticism. So all we have heard in this lecture from start to finish is an articulation of the non-Christian worldview. And you remember when we started this series, I said, watch for a tactic, and, and we have to learn to use it ourselves, what I call the tactic of strategic envelopment. By that, I mean you take an event like the coming of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ in history, and you pack all those facts about Jesus Christ, the claim of His virgin birth, the claim of His life, His sermon material, reactions of people to Him, that whole package that we call the New Testament. And you envelop that package in your worldview. That's what Dr. Stroll has done. He's taken the New Testament and enveloped it in a worldview so he explains it from his perspective. But this is a two-edged sword. We can envelop it in the worldview of the Scriptures themselves. We allow the Scripture to explain the Scripture. And we take our position in the worldview that there's a creator and a creature distinction that has all kinds of intellectual implications. We, we understand there was a historic fall with all kinds of intellectual uh, implications to that. And we understand that the God of creation spoke publicly in history from a mountain in Sinai at one point in history in the Hebrew language such that if you had a tape recorder, you would have recorded His voice. So therefore, God does not have a problem revealing Himself in human language. So when Jesus Christ walks the face of the earth and makes the God claim that He is God and man in the hypostatic union, 
He can speak, and I understand that to be the very words of God that come out of His human mouth. And I don't have a problem with that. And if He turns, could, if he wants to turn bread, uh, stones into bread, He can do that. I don't have a problem with that. That doesn't mean that all rocks are going to fall apart because Jesus took one and turned it into bread. Rocks are going to stay rocks. That one didn't because that wasn't God's plan for that one. So, what is my trust? My trust is in the character of God. All right, let's go on. And we want to uh, finish up this section beyond uh, and get over to 54 so we can get on to the doctrine next week. We discussed Stroll, so we won't go through the text on, on page 52. 50, uh, uh, but if you look, drop down the bottom of page 52. There's some sentences in that last paragraph I want to draw your attention to. <clears throat> the New Testament picture of Jesus is often called the charismatic Christ, as mentioned above. It contrasts with the real historical Jesus. Figure 2 shows how this pagan sort of thinking contrasts with biblical thinking on the issue. Some of the most extreme critics hold to position A, in which the charismatic Christ has no connection whatsoever with the historical Jesus. Now, the next sentence, if you would underline it, there's an important point I'm making here. In their worldview, that is, in the pagan unbelieving worldview, man experiences religious emotions and responds in his imagination by generating religious images. That's the dynamic for the origin of the New Testament. People had religious experiences. So they wrote about them. Shirley MacLaine had religious experiences and she wrote about it. Only a number of people had religious experiences and they wrote about it. So there's no difference between the Gospel of John and what Shirley MacLaine wrote. Because it's all coming out of the human intellect. And see, you can sit here and endlessly try to defend this little point of the Bible and that little point of the Bible and you'll be sitting there a thousand proofs later still defending yourself if you don't come to grips with the fact the basic agenda denies the creator-creature distinction and the self-revealing God. That's the target. Not some obscure little detail somewhere. Now, continuing. No communication exists between a creator and a creature because at bottom all is one impersonal cosmos, a grand continuity of being. New Testament writers in this view, now watch this, New Testament writers in this view merely created the charismatic Christ out of their religious imaginations. Christ in this view, I got this from an from a apologist and I love this statement. Christ is like a chameleon that takes on the qualities of the observer's theology. Okay? Chameleon blends into the environment. And so there can be a thousand and eight different Jesuses, all of whom reflect the imagination of their authors. That's why you have to have a creed. And you can't go around this world saying, well, I believe in Jesus. What Jesus? Tell me about this Jesus. Is this Jesus the Jesus of the New Testament Scripture? Or is this the Jesus of someone's imagination? Maybe it's William Miller's imagination. Maybe it's John Smith's imagination. Maybe it's uh, Mary Baker Patterson Glover Eddy's imagination. Or is this the New Testament Jesus that we're talking about? So, always hone in. Which Jesus? On page 53, I'm trying to summarize this, and I have a quote there that I'd like you to look at. 
Before we do that, however, I want you to turn to John 12 for a moment. At bottom, we're trying to get now at the bottom of all this criticism against Jesus. And I've said several times tonight that the, the, the problem is this agenda of trying to make the world safe for sinners. And we do that by cutting off revelation from a holy, righteous God. Now, in John 12, 37, we have a portrayal of uh, the unmasking of what was going on. Here is John the Apostle's description, guided by the Holy Spirit, of what we've been talking about with Dr. Stroll tonight. Same thing. So watch from, page, uh, from verse 37 uh, down, to, uh, down, to page, uh, down to verse 41. 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Now look at that. Was Jesus inefficient in his revelation? Did he not have the right church growth program? Did he not buy the right religious franchise so we could set something in motion? Something's failing. Here's God-man, the hypostatic union, performing many signs, and they didn't believe in him. Why? You know, if he lived today, people would have to say, Jesus, you've got to change your approach here. The Bible says, no, no. Jesus doesn't have to change his approach. His approach did exactly what it was supposed to do. Watch the next verse. That the Word, purpose clause, see? They weren't believing in Him. Purpose clause, that the Word of the Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which He spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Arm of the Lord, by the way, is an Old Testament messianic term. For this cause, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, He has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of it. Remember Isaiah? Time of the fall of the kingdom. What was a prophet in the Old Testament? He was a prosecutor. Isaiah brought prosecution against the nation Israel for their disbelief in the Old Testament word of God. And part of the judgment that Isaiah announced was that the more of the Word of God that you hear, if you reject, the more of the Word of God you hear, the more you're going to reject. So ironically, preaching the Gospel doesn't just soften hearts. Preaching the Gospel itself can be the process of hardening hearts. So lack of belief is not a sign of impotence in the Gospel message. Lack of belief in the gospel message may be a sign of the hardening ministry of the Word of God, a damning ministry of the Word of God, and it's an awesome thing to think about. Far from saying Jesus was inefficient, far from saying the gospel just doesn't get through, so we've got to modify it, got to adapt to the audience kind of thing. Far from that, lack of belief can be a sign of damnation. The Word of God accomplishes both things. It hardens and it softens. So, Jesus, the revelation through the person of Jesus Christ, did not fail. It did accomplish the purpose. The purpose clause there is, in verse 38, that the Word of Isaiah might be fulfilled. It, it, it was doing work. 
It's just not the work that people would like to have seen done. Okay, back to the page 54 in the notes. We'll, we'll finish here in just a few minutes. The, the central paragraph, Modern critics have followed a similar path. Having turned from the pieces of biblical truth mixed into Western civilization, they deny the possibility of any verbal revelation. Now, look at this quote coming up. This is a ripper. I sought for years to get a quote this clear. Now, this is by Paul Tillich, who is probably one of America's most famous theologians in the 20th century. I heard him when I was at MIT. He used to come down from Harvard and give lectures. One of the most famous theologians of the 20th century, neo-Orthodox person, Dr. Paul Tillich, not an Orthodox. I said neo-Orthodox, meaning modernist. He wrote, quote, now watch this quote, because he lets it all out of the bag here. If you have doubted what I've said tonight, listen to the quote, because he just verifies everything I've told you in the last 60 minutes. There are no revealed doctrines, but there are revelatory events and situations which can be described in doctrinal terms. The Word of God contains neither revealed commandments nor revealed doctrines. Look at that sentence twice. The Word of God contains neither revealed commandments nor revealed doctrines. Now, does that explain to you why you can go to your first liberal church that your great-grandfather went to that used to preach the gospel 50 years ago and you don't hear the gospel anymore? You know why? Because the people in the pulpit have been trained under guys like Tillich. So they don't even believe that there's any communication from the Word of God. All the Bible is is a compilation of human authors who had religious experiences, like Shirley MacLaine did. She could have written Revelation 22 for all I care. No difference. Fundamental. Okay, now, conclusion. Diagram on page 55. Here's the process. Remember, we had a similar diagram back when we were studying the hypostatic union, the virgin birth, and we said the doctrine of God, man, and nature was fouled up and if it was fouled up, there was a re- revulsion against the claim of the virgin birth. Well, now we see a similar situation, except now the issue isn't the doctrine of God, man, and nature. It's much more of a narrow area, the idea of revelation. The pagan worldview hits the king's historical appearance, looks at it, sees it, and denies it can be any revelation from God and rejects it and goes off in a wild search for the historical Jesus. Will the real Jesus please stand up? Sort of thing. Whereas the biblical worldview, somebody who's submitted himself to Scripture, who has a regenerate heart, who's taught by the Spirit, looks at the king's historical appearance, and he accepts it, because he recognizes the voice of his Maker. He's not in rebellion against that voice. So he has no problem accepting the New Testament text, prima facie that is what it claims to be. Now, next week, we're going to begin three doctrines. The doctrine of kenosis, the doctrine of impeccability, and the doctrine of infallibility. Those are the doctrines associated with the life of the king. Just like the doctrine of hypostatic union was associated with virgin birth, now we're going to look at this doctrine of kenosis. If you wonder what kenosis means, it means empty. And it comes from that very, very familiar passage we all know from Philippians 2.5. And we're going to talk about that And I think we'll see some pretty amazing things that should be encouraging to us in our life. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have continued to bear witness to the great truths of Scripture. We thank you for saving us out of 
the self-deception, the lies, and the deceit and the darkness of this world system. We pray now that having our eyes opened and understanding the content of your revelation and the issues at stake and the secret agendas of the fallen human heart, that we would be more effective in our conversations with people, that we'd understand where they're coming from, and we wouldn't be swayed off of our feet by people who make grandiose claims, but instead we would be able to see through them and see that they are, of all men, most to be pitied. That we might pray for them and pray that your Holy Spirit open their hearts to the great truths of the Scripture. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We have a few minutes. We can uh, work through some material if they want to raise an issue. Anybody beside Debbie want to ask a question? Yes. Uh, I have a tendency to watch that uh, Discovery Channel, the Learning Channel. Mm-hmm. That's my problem. They have you know, in the Church of the I, I, this is a good question that um, is brought up here, and that is that the, looking at TV programs like Learning Channel and so on, uh, we hear a lot of the work being done about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the cult of the Essenes and the people that lived in the cliffs there where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Uh, is this whole effort to uncover these people um, really an attempt to undermine the gospel? I don't think it's consciously intended to do that. I think the scholars that work in those areas are just curious. The thing that they don't do is what we found the biologists, the geologists, and the astrophysicists don't do. They go out into the universe and they see data. They uncover data. And they want to interpret the data in some sort of a frame of reference. But their presupposition is that there is no... There's no plan out there prior to man interpreting the data. So if there's a history, for example, we want to see the history of man. No, we're curious. We want to see what what happened in history. But what what they think about in trying to get at this history is that man has to start with uninterpreted raw data and build up a history from that raw data. Whereas we, biblical-believing people, we need to think in terms of the fact that, yes, we have to go out and dig, too. I mean, archaeology helps us, too. But we don't say that history uh, doesn't exist until man thinks it up. We say that history existed for all eternity in the mind of God. 
and that there was a sovereign plan all the time to administer the plan. And so God has authored history. History is going exactly the way he wants it to go and that all these pieces fit together and that the Bible is a key, if you would just let it, is a key to interpreting this stuff. Now, in particular, the Dead Sea Scrolls have two ramifications. What at first they found with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you don't hear much about it anymore, is they found pieces of Isaiah and Daniel that were written, particularly Daniel, that was written and dated by the... Their method of dating is the style of the letters and, and paleography. And so they found shreds of the book of Daniel on these Dead Sea Scrolls that predated when the critics thought Daniel was written. Because, see, what is it about the book of Daniel that forces every unbeliever to late date it? It's filled with prophecy. You can't have the Daniel written early. Because the moment you allow Daniel to have been written early, you're face-to-face with prophecy. So since Daniel prophesied of Media Persia, of Greece... They've got to get the date of Daniel shoved forward in history so that it becomes a retrospective fake prophecy. Well, the problem came that the Dead Sea Scrolls were dated prior to the last date of Daniel. So this, this created a little consternation. And it's interesting that in all the discussion you're hearing about Dead Sea Scrolls, that discussion has been relegated to some journals that aren't talked about too much. Nobody wants to, yeah, nobody wants to talk about that hot potato, see. So, so, again, see, here we have the filter operating. The issues that you hear about are issues either that are, quote, kind of neutral-ish, although there is no real neutral issue, but kind of neutral-ish, or hostile, potentially hostile to the gospel. Oh, we've got to look at that one. But when it comes to archaeological details that confirm the Scripture, then we just don't want to deal with that one. And so the big issue with the Dead Sea Scrolls is what was this community that formulated these things. And these people had... There was a whole religious community that existed out in that area. And the fascinating thing, from a conservative point of view, is the connection between John the Baptist and this Essene group. Because they spoke in terms of light and darkness. They spoke in terms of the sons of light and darkness. They had a screwed-up view of the Messiah. I think they had multiple messiahs. Um, but it was clear from from what we've seen so far is that they were thinking that the time of the Messiah is close. The time of the end is near. And interestingly, they were only 10 miles away from John the Baptist's ministry. So the question is, was there you know, interaction between those? Did John go out there and work with them? Uh, did they influence John in the human sense of his vocabulary, for example? Um, did John not borrow, I won't use the word borrow, but did he... Uh, from a human point of view, did God use perhaps the Essenes to, to give him some vocabulary in terms of expression, which he then had corrected through the Holy Spirit because John's theology is not Essene theology, um, in order to, to trigger the, the person of Christ. So there's a lot of questions about what this group was. It's just that the treasures that they have from our conservative perspective is the wonderful preservation of Scripture. And the textual material that comes out of Dead Sea Scrolls is just tremendously exciting. Uh, it's exciting for another reason that the texts from Isaiah that come out. In fact, I quote the Dead Sea Scrolls in. Uh, remember when I we did it? Was it last year when we did um, the post-exilic period? And I brought out 
Uh, in fact, in the notes you'll see, I had a text from the Messiaritic text. I had a text from the Palestinian text type of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I showed you there, that's what I was using. That was taken from a fragment of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when you compare the text of the Dead Sea Scroll with the Masoretic text, which is 1000 A.D., and see, people would say, oh, wow, you, you, got, you Christians only got a Hebrew text. It's 1000 A.D. I mean, anything could have happened before 1000 A.D. You can't trust that text. Well, now, isn't it interesting that when you dig up the Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 B.C., we see essentially the same text. So what does that tell you about our confidence in the text? So... Our interest in the Dead Sea Scrolls is prim primarily in terms of lower criticism, manuscript detail. We're incidentally interested in what the Essenes did, how they worshipped, what they thought, but only as background to the New Testament. I wasn't sure what they were trying to bring across. I guess, uh, they were, it starts off like a history to see what they were. Yeah. Well, it's, it's healthy to look at those kind of programs and ask yourself, what is the agenda going on? I think all of us as Christians, we can't just sit here and passively take in anything that comes out of the tube. We can't do that. We've got to filter it. And that's that's a good, good approach. I don't know whether our library has uh, any of the books, but there are a number of very good conservative, what you call New Testament introductions. Now, probably CBD. What's the book? CBD or whatever the book thing is. Look for, look for the title, New Testament Introductions. Now, that's higher criticism from a conservative perspective, hopefully, that they sell conservative books in there. But um, there's one by Guthrie. Um, I, offhand, I can't think of some of the names of the authors, but uh, and I'm sure since I studied them, there, there are some new New Testament introductions. There are also some conservative treatments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I recommend, frankly, if you're interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls, is get a translation of them. Because most translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls will have footnotes that cross-reference Scripture texts. And my point here is, Donna, you... In all this discussion, the closer you can personally get to the primary material, so it's not filtered through what Professor so-and-so said, just read it for yourself. I mean, we're not stupid. We can... Yeah, those books, I'm sure... The book... I would bet you Barnes & Noble would have a translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. They're trying to get, yes, I've heard that. I haven't seen it. But he's right. There's a CD-ROM that's going to come out with a text on it. And that's what you want. You don't want 500 volumes of commentary on it. You just want to read it for yourself. I mean, you don't feel intimidated. You can go ahead and pick up the Dead Sea Scrolls, and a lot of it's junk. 
I mean, the stuff about the light and the darkness, and some of it's all about their religious community and this and that. I mean, it's like reading something out of the hippies of the 60s and the, in the flower children in Colorado somewhere. But, but apart from that, where it's, it, you've got texts of Maccabees, you've got texts of Daniel, you've got texts of Isaiah, you've got ne- uh, passages from Isaiah being commented upon. And the value of that is it tells you how first century people were reading the Old Testament. Very interesting. One of the things that comes out of this, just from our perspective, is that those people were clearly reading the Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom as a literal, physical kingdom on earth. They weren't talking about some spiritual heaven somewhere like the amillennialists. They were talking that way. So that means that when John the Baptist came walking into that era of Judaism, and Jesus too, for that matter, when Jesus and John were around saying the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God is coming, our point in our debates over eschatology is how would the guy in the street have understood Jesus when Jesus said the kingdom of God is coming? Well, if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, that is what the Jews were thinking. So it helps understanding what the guy in the street was thinking about so that when you read the New Testament text, there's no problem interpreting it because these people have already. If Jesus didn't mean what they meant, then he should have qualified it. But Jesus doesn't qualify it, so that means that Jesus went along with a popular impression of what the kingdom was. So those are the tools, those are the benefits of learning about these peoples. But I wouldn't frankly, spend a lot of time on that if you haven't first spent a lot of time just in the Bible itself. Don't let this become a, a deflection from your step. Yes. All it would take was a 10-year error. Yeah. And you, we don't have that refinement. They can't tell what plus or minus 10. So, so that's right, Debbie. That's a good observation that, that a lot of these things are, are date contingent. And that's my point about so many things about Egypt and Egyptian history. We, we really don't control ancient history well enough to integrate with Scripture. I wish we did. Because, I mean, I'm sure that the Word of God in history had ramifications and had all kinds of implications. I, I think we would see links. I think we would be able to identify clearly who that Queen of Sheba was. I think we could clarify the plagues on Egypt when they happened. All that was public. That wasn't symbolism. That wasn't done in a corner. That was all there. So there's got to be historical stuff out there. It's just that Satan is the god of this world, and he's just blinded people, and he's, he literally has screwed up history, the accounts of history. I mean, if we're sitting here in 1999 and we have scholars in this country that are already denying that the, the, the genocide against Jews in 1943 didn't happen, and we're only 50 years removed from that and we're already denying it. So, come on, pal. I mean, if we're thousands of years removed from Jesus, you better believe we've got history screwed up. So, Well, next, we've run out of time. Well, next week, um, we're going to get into now... 
what doctrines flow out of this. And these doctrines are going to be hinged on the hypostatic union. They're all built. That's why we had the hypostatic union first. And they sound all hairy and complicated and stuff. And they are because God's incomprehensible. But there's some powerful truths here that apply to Christ's priesthood, uh, to the filling of the Holy Spirit today, and so on. So there's a lot of practical implications from this. So we'll see you next week.